0: Our task is to help our pre-service students to really be like water and to find ways to inhabit the cracks, to continue to do what they find as good and meaningful and satisfying work.
1: Welcome to another episode of School 2.0, conversations about education and everything else. Teaching is arguably unlike many other professions. First of all, you work with kids more than you work with adults. Secondly, your day is often wildly unpredictable. It's very fast-paced, and you don't really know what each day will bring. Another difference, though, is a bit more worrisome. According to most studies, about 50% of teachers leave the field within their first five years. In fact, most of them leave within the first two years. So teaching has a large attrition problem compared to many other professions. So the question we're going to ask in this episode is why do so many teachers leave the field? Today we have on Dr. Doris Santoro, who's looked into this issue of teacher attrition, why teachers leave quite extensively. Dr. Santoro started as a high school English and GED prep teacher, in Brooklyn and San Francisco, and now is a professor of education at Bowdoin College who teaches courses in educational studies and teacher education. She's also written an excellent book, the contents of which we're going to talk about today. It's called Demoralized, Why Teachers Leave the Profession They Love and How They Can Stay. She distinguishes between teacher burnout and teacher demoralization. We'll get into that, as well as what teachers can do if they feel like they really love the profession but want to leave, and what administrators can also do to try to stem this tide of teacher turnover. Really great episode. I hope you love it. Doris Santoro, how are you?
0: I am very well. How are you, Kevin?
1: Oh, good. I'm looking forward to talking to you today.
0: Likewise.
1: Yeah. Well, so your work focuses on an area that is very pressing, both at the current time, we're talking in September 2020, so this is COVID season, um, but also just generally, it's teacher attrition and why teachers leave the field. So I want to start with a really broad question. What is it that we know about teacher attrition, um, particularly in the United States, because I assume that's where most of our listeners are. What do we know about teacher attrition? How big of a problem is it? How costly is it for schools? What effects does it have?
0: Well, one of the things that we know about teacher attrition is that teacher attrition, um, and this doesn't really account for the places of um, high need areas, sort of special ed or English language learner teachers or science or math. But in terms of straight numbers, um, if we didn't have a teacher attrition problem, we wouldn't have a teacher shortage problem. Mm. Um, And so what we know is approximately 50% of all teachers leave within their first five years of teaching. Um, And that is even more higher is that concentration is higher in those first three years of teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that we know is that um, while teachers of color have been uh, the most, probably the most successfully recruited new teachers, um, and Mm. this is all a post Brown versus Board of Ed commentary, not because there's a whole thing to get into um, teacher attrition with um, black teachers um, at the time of Brown versus Board of Ed. But if we're talking about these more contemporary times, we know that in the last 30 years, uh, teachers of color have been um, recruited very successfully into the field, but they are also the highest, um, have the highest attrition rates of um, any group going into teaching.
1: Uh, and and that, that's one of the things you said there was really uh, shocking. It's if we didn't have a teacher uh, attrition problem, we wouldn't have a teacher shortage, which tells me that it's not that people aren't going into the field. It's really that they just aren't staying in the field. At least half of them aren't staying.
0: That's partially correct. I mean, so half of them aren't staying. And we know that, you know, in any profession, there is going to be some attrition and some attrition is desirable, right? That people come into the field and realize this is not the right work for me, um, and, or other people might realize this is not the right work for you, and um, they may leave. But, you know, what we're really concerned about is within the, within that 50%, um, there are many people who are um, in love with teaching and very um, excited to be doing the work of teaching um, who leave. There's something else you just said that I want to go back to. Um, You know, one of the things I don't want to misrepresent is actually we do have many fewer people going into teaching um, in Mm -hmm. the last um, five five to 10 years. Um, We're seeing um, people entering teacher education programs at um, rates that in some places are cut by 50 percent. So we know that, and and it's really been in, I think the last five years, that we've seen a precipitous drop in um, people entering teacher education programs. And um, and, and that's technically traditional teacher education programs. And so, you know, some of that um, might be um, the result of alternative programs, but we also know that programs uh, like Teach for America, for instance, represents something like the last time I read some information, which might be a little outdated, but something like one one hundredth of the percent of teachers in the United States. So, you know, we can't attribute it all to alternative route programs um, or opportunities. Um, You know, what I think is that the, that the work of teaching has um, become in the public eye, much less attractive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we see uh, ongoing scapegoating of teachers, and we also see um, real restrictions on teacher autonomy and real question and, and you know, serious questions about what is the work of teaching uh, today. Is is it that kind of uh, creative, intellectual? engagement with young people or in some places, you know, does it feel much more like being, uh, deliver you know, some sort of functionary delivering something that someone else has, uh, created.
1: Yeah. I do notice that with my students in a teacher ed program, um, a lot of them, if you ask them why they're going into teaching, they experience it almost as akin to a sort of calling. Like I want to help kids. I want to like be with kids, interact with kids. But then you, at least I start to worry about, well, is there going to be a gap between what you expect of the teaching career and what is going to be demanded of you on a daily basis? Because it is more standardized. It is more scripted in a lot of ways. And I think that prevents a lot of teachers from forming the kinds of relationships they go into the field because they want to form.
0: I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Kevin. And, um, actually my dissertation advisor, uh, was, was David Hansen who wrote the call to teach. And I was yeah. just reading, there's a new book that's going to be coming out called David Hansen and the call to teach. And one of the things I loved, um, I, I had a chance to read some of these uh, chapters beforehand. One of the things I loved was Uh, Where some of these authors were showing how even in highly regimented um, schools, how teachers who feel that call to teach are carving out spaces to have Mm. that humane um, work with students or that intellectual and creative um, sort of uh, spark still with their uh, with their curricular work. Wow. And so one of the things I think, I'm also a teacher educator, and one of the things I do think that our task is, is to help our our students, our pre-service uh, students, find, recognize the challenges they're up against and, and to really be like water and to find ways to inhabit the cracks and to continue to do would they find as good and meaningful and satisfying work, even in conditions uh, that are uh, really challenging? And to then, um, and to then also teach them ways uh, to push back against some of that um, mm. th- in, in ways that can be heard, right? So one of the things that I um, like to do with my teacher education students is making them uh, have rationales for every choice that they're making pedagogically. Mm. Um, and I feel like that prepares them to be both deliberate uh, educators, but also people who can look at the um, principle and say, I have good reasons and, and strong supports for the choices I'm making. Um, so, mm. I, I want teachers to be activists for the profession, and I don't necessarily mean that that entails, um, you know, standing out and striking, although sometimes that may be the case. But being yeah. an activist for the profession, I feel is um, standing up for the integrity and dignity of this work. And that might just be um, within your own classroom, it might be a very quiet. Um, approach to what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Well, that leads us into then a question um, about you mentioned really the first five years is where the trouble seems to be statistically and especially the first three is when the big trouble seems to be for teacher attrition. What's so difficult um, about those first five years for people who, let's say, are listening to this and maybe aren't teachers, especially what is so difficult Mm -hmm. about that first five years? Because other fields have first five years as well. And they probably don't generally have the same attrition problem. What is it about teaching?
0: So this is outside of my area of expertise. So I'm just, I'm sure that there are people who actually study uh, this, who may be listening and saying, what are you talking about? And so I encourage you, to, uh speak with them. I imagine someone like Marilyn Cochran Smith would have something really good to say about this. Mm. <laughs> um, but you know, for me and just someone who was a teacher, it is just extraordinarily hard um, yeah. to become a teacher. And um to, you know, you're doing so many things at once. You are trying to make sense out of how you're teaching, what you're teaching, why you're teaching it. Um, So there's the content that you're trying to figure out, you know, how to... Usually, you know, you go into teaching because you love the content, especially at the secondary level, but uh, usually elementary teachers also, there's some piece of content that they loved as well. You know, so you love it. How do you make this something um, that's accessible and energizing for students? And how do you, you know, you're not only um, educating individual students, you're then also, so you're trying to figure out how each one of these um, students tick. But then you're trying to figure out how do you make them all, um, you know, gel together and work mm-hmm. as a team. Um, and you are not given usually sufficient Uh, mentoring, you're definitely not given enough time to plan. Um, And so I, I think it's even for people who are in love with the work, it's extraordinarily difficult. And in many places, and I'm very careful to say this, um, in many places, um, you are not compensated as well as you should be.
1: Um, or at least as compared to other fields that you could be in. So right. The for, for the kind, lower. for the yeah. kind,
0: for the kind of um, expertise, hours you're working and- the hours you're working expertise that you have. Right. And we all know that the hours you're working far exceed whatever the amount of time student, yeah. your contract hours. Right. Yeah. So I just, yeah. I, I think, um, I, I, I think that it's, it's all of those pieces. So I think mentoring, planning time, support, um, you know support um, you know i I think that also you know we do operate with idealized visions of what the work is, and that's why you know the real challenge for us teacher educators and for experienced educators who want to help induct people into the profession is to both be incredibly realist about what it is right now and show where, um, where there's so much opportunity for agency and um, meaning making and, um, and doing important work within that, you know, so it's both of those things. And that's no easy task.
1: Yeah. Well, quick story from my own teaching career to to probably illustrate too. Uh, I was in my second year of teaching at a Baltimore County high school. And I had a particularly bad day, Uh, not atypical, you know, you have, a, you know, you have a certain amount of bad days. And I burst into my mentor's office. We had full-time mentor teachers there. And I just, the floodgates opened. I started, you know, crying about, I'm horrible at this. This isn't going well. They're, they're just not, you know, getting the things that I want, think they should be getting. And um, my mentor teacher said to me, you know, think of it this way. If only you reach a few of them, it will be worth it. And I thought about that but then when I went home to really reflect on it, I mean that does mean that she's saying you will fail more than you will succeed mm-hmm. right and and that's a hard psychological toll I mean I just remember in my teaching career just the psychological aspect was was hard often you're you really like your subject area you really want to share it with kids, but you're also in a room with a lot of kids who frankly don't really like that subject area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to do that day in and day out and and uh, it's 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 draining, so I can definitely understand why, especially in the first few years before you really get used to that and really get used to navigating that. and like you said earlier, learning to be like water in a certain way, um, it's a hard thing
0: well, and and I think you know, you nailed it in that this is about getting really comfortable with failure. And usually though, this is not for everyone, but usually, you know, the people who go into teaching are generally good students, right. Who, yes. who yeah. aren't accustomed to failure. And so, you know, uh, and my students ask me often in the, in the sort of uh, interview process we have to, to join our program, they'll ask, you know, two questions like, what should I know ahead of time or what's the biggest downfall people have and like, what should I do to prepare? And the two things I always say are like the things that are going to really trip you up are perfectionism. Like you need to let go of perfectionism now. And the thing that I suggest you do immediately is book a weekly therapy appointment, right? Because there's, because there's also, um, and, it, and it's not just because it's hard, but I think that teaching is so revealing of ourselves, right? We encounter ourselves in, in the same way, you know, since I've become a parent. Um, I didn't understand that because I started teaching when I was much earlier than I became a parent. But, you know, it's you have to confront who you are so directly, Um you know, and both because of thinking about our own reactions to things, but also our students are just, you know, tr- like, I don't know, like they can home in on the truth in, in ways that are pretty remarkable, <laughs> right? You know, so they can let us know exactly who we are. Or, or, they will tell you. Right? Like who you are. And then that's, uh, and and you need to look at that. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, I yeah. I, I like that you talked about um, failure and and it's something about being comfortable with failure and also never being satisfied with failure. And how yeah. do you, how do you sit with both of those things at the same time? That's
1: right. That's right. So, and this gets us uh, closer to where your research is because most people, when we think about why teachers leave, the phrase that we often hear is burnout. Teachers leave because they just get to a point where they just can't exert the same energy anymore that the job requires. And it does require a lot of energy. Um, But you distinguish between that and something that you call demoralization, which kind of makes sense to me as a teacher who who did leave the field. Uh, So let's talk about the difference between burnout and demoralization as reasons that teachers either leave the field or consider leaving the field.
0: Um, Thanks for bringing up that distinction. For me, it's the the key to all of this. And so um, first of all, I think one, one thing about uh, disentangling the two that makes it tricky is they often have very similar symptoms um, that you, you could feel, as a teacher, you could feel exhausted and worn out and depressed and um, avoiding your work, right? All of these things could be symptoms of both of them, but it's the source that I find to be distinct, and it's also the remedy is also going to be different so you know in burnout one of the things um that i understand and you know so i really like to think about the metaphors and then sort of literalize the metaphors and then bring them back to metaphor you know in in burnout you think about for instance a candle and when you burn out a candle what's left nothing you know you end up with some stubby thing that you're just going to throw out and um you know, when I started this research, um, it all began because I received a letter from one of my former colleagues. And this is a woman who I taught side by side with. We co-taught a journalism class in um, a San Francisco public high school. Um, I, we planned together our English classes. I knew what she was all about. And she said that she couldn't keep teaching anymore because she wasn't teaching the way she wanted to. um, And she wasn't doing what she thought was right by kids. And, you know, I knew that for this woman, that didn't mean she didn't have anything left to offer, that she wasn't that little stub, that (laughs) burnt out stub, right? She, She had a lot more to offer, right? If conditions were different, she could keep doing this job. And that's where the difference really lies. Is I see when people talk about burnout, it's a very individ- It's often very conceived of as individualistically. Um, have you protected yourself? Have you set good boundaries? And there are definitely things that can mitigate that around you in your context. But it's really about the individual. Um, when I when I think about my colleague, you know, she had a lot left to give, but there were so many things that happened um, in her school that had radically changed, um, the work as she knew it. Um, they used to have teams, um, where all of the teachers would gather and discuss the kids and figure out who, you know, be able to collaborate on how to reach someone who was having a hard time or, you know, divide up the work of reaching out to families. Um, when she first started at the school, there were no, um, there was no tracking, but, you know, now it had become a highly tracked school. It wasn't a selective school. Now it was suddenly becoming, you know, something that was selective. All of these conditions changed. And so it really changed her work and how she felt about it. And so for me, demoralization, you know, I I think about it in in a pretty literal way, D to be kept away from the moral, what's good about your work. So demoralization is when, you know, if what makes your work good is being able to feel like you're serving students really well, um, because you don't lose track of them, you know, your class sizes are reasonable, or, you know, you're working with that team, or, um, you know, that the kids at the high end of the Um, you know, achievement spectrum are receiving the same as the kids at the lower end of the achievement spectrum, like, and that, and that's important to you. Um, You know, if you feel like you can't do those things that really are, what are the core, it's sort of the core values you bring to this work, that's when it's demoralization. Um, So, you know, another example, I was just talking about this with um, someone today, was there's, you know, a teacher, and this is, um, this is in the uh, book, you know, this teacher in Wisconsin, who really saw uh, teaching as this civic, um, this way of giving back to his community, a a civic obligation. Uh, He's an Eagle Scout, you know, all, you know, he's there to serve. And how demoralizing it was for him, when the Um, public discourse turned him into what he called public enemy number one right where suddenly teachers are the enemy um, teachers are you know slackers you know taking public money whatever that might be you know he was devastated and that was a real source of demoralization for him to be rather than cast as someone who is um is this, you know, respected member of a community because that's how he always saw teaching to now be sort of rendered the most suspect person in a community um, was very damaging to him.
1: So not only to do work that you find to be valuable, but to do work that, you know, the community values and that you kind of have the, the the idea that you're doing something that the community finds valuable.
0: Exactly. And and one of the things I was just going to say is that, um, you know, what is that moral center or the, the most significant values might shift for different teachers, right? So for some people, they may not care what the community thinks about them. As long as they can engage and do, you know, uh, help students think um, really deeply about social studies or math or science, you know, then they don't care what the community thinks. But for this person, his, his esteem in the community, because he saw civic, um, he he took such civic pride in his work. um, That was a source of demoralization for him.
1: Yeah. When teachers let's say find that that they do feel demoralized and let's say that they can kind of diagnose it as well, not burned out because it's not that I don't have energy. Like you said, the the teacher that that you uh, were talking about in San Francisco, she had energy it's and they start to realize it's really because what I feel like I want to be doing is not matching what I'm expected to do every day. And I don't feel like what I do every day is, is good. Um, What is the recommendation then? Because I know some teachers, of course, do leave the field. But as you say in your book, there are some teachers who who manage to stay in the field and either somehow push past the demoralization or, or change their surroundings or change the way they interact in a way that that maybe quells that a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Um- right and that's one of the things thank you for bringing that up one of the things i think is really important about demoralization compared to burnout right in burnout you end up that little stub right there's nothing left but in but it's remoralization is possible right you can reconnect with those values and and find spaces where that is possible and i think one of the most important ways to do that is to find other people who share the same um, values about teaching as you do. Um, And so that might be um, a teacher um, down the hall. It might be somebody you find on Facebook or Twitter who's talking about that. It might be through um, a professional organization that you go to once a year, but maybe you need to stay in more contact um with those folks um throughout you know throughout um the school year i think um finding people who share those values who who reinforce for you that those values are worthwhile and worth pursuing and then sharing together strategies for enacting them um and again for some people um, it might be a very public thing of taking a stand and writing a letter to the editor. Um, for others, it might be, you know, choosing to really de-emphasize this one thing that you've been told you must do in your classroom, but you know, you're tenured and, Mm. you know, you could maybe not pay as much attention to that as you're being asked to do. You know, um, and and it's one of the uh,
1: hidden advantages of tenure though. It it really is.
0: Yes. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that, um, is, is fascinating about many teachers, um, is that at least, you know, the work I've seen done on the general psychological profile of teachers is that we are, we tend to be, um, rule following and sort of conflict averse. And so I, I think that, um, unfortunately I cannot count myself in that. So I, I use the we, but I'm actually so not that way. I'm, I've always been ready for conflict and, um, and, but anyway, uh, uh, but, but I think, you know, being, um, okay with, especially if you have tenure and you're feeling pretty secure in your job, like don't, you don't need to do every single thing that's being asked yeah, of you.
1: Well, or like you said earlier, it goes back to the idea of uh, if you've, with your own students, you have them kind of clarify the rationales for things mm-hmm. and kind of the values of, of, that are reflected in what they do. And that's also probably really important as well. Like if, if a principal or a team leader comes to you and says, you know, um, you really need to do this rather than what you're doing, it, it, you know, you can you can say to them, well, here's what the research is or or the rationales for why I think it really makes more sense to do it this way instead of, you know, being caught off guard.
0: Exactly. Right. And, and I, and I like that you're, you're sort of sharpening what I'm saying here, Kevin, because I'm certainly not saying like, yeah. And like, if you want every day to have, you know, a disco dance party in your classroom, (laughs) you know, I mean, for five minutes, I do think that that would be fantastic if people did that every day, but like, you need to be able to justify that on a number of levels pedagogically and curricularly. And so um, do you have good reasons and can you articulate those? I think, and that's why I think working uh, or being connected with um, others who share your values um, is incredibly helpful because they will help you get better at articulating them and finding those ways um, to, to push back productively.
1: I find that teaching is so full of um, interesting tensions and one of the tensions that uh, is so interesting for me to think about, I think it relates here, is the tension between teaching being such a really personal profession in terms of um, the quality of your job is so intimately affected by how you feel about your job and how you feel that you can do your job. But at the same time, it's so depersonal in the sense that a lot of the things expected of teachers make it almost like, well, I want to do it this way, but I have to do it that way. Uh, Whereas I would imagine that's not true for a lot of other professions. Um, If there are any insurance adjusters watching, I apologize in advance. But if you're an insurance adjuster and you feel crappy about, you know, you're having a really crappy day or you really don't want to be there and you're really not excited about adjusting adjusting insurance that day, the quality of your work may not, arguably is not affected by that right like someone can look at the work you've done and not know that you were having a really bad week or whatever but teaching's not that way it's so affected by the emotional experience that the teacher has
0: yeah and and i think that you know, one of the things that I find exciting about teaching between that highly personal and then the depersonal or just the professional expectations of what you do um, is that that sort of I'm almost thinking of it in a. I don't know if it's because we're coming upon fall and it's Halloween. Like I almost think of it as an alchemy that we get to engage in. Right. And it's sort of like, or, or, you know, if you wanted to then, you know, so if you don't want to think about witches and Halloween, you can then do something, you know, more academic and think of like Paloferian praxis, right? Like how do we, how do we find something creative um, in, in that, in that moment between um, what you want and what either the state wants or the school wants or the whatever the professional expectations are right there. And I think one of the things that I try to cultivate in my students is a love of problem solving, right? Because if you don't, if you don't think if you think that you're going to go into teaching and you're like, and now I get to be with my students and it will be lovely, you know, that's not how it's going to go. Um, it's going to always be problems. There are always going to be problems. And so, how do we look at this like fund, as you said, like this fundamental challenge, this fundamental tension, um, in in teaching, and and kind of. Uh, luxuriate in it a little bit and say, wow, this is really fascinating. Like, so how am I going to work this out? This is a puzzle. Um, and, and, you know, how well we're feeling, um, and how much juice we have in the tank, you know, is going to affect our tolerance for that kind of problem solving, right? If you truly have been, um, you know, and I'm thinking about teachers teaching right now who, many of whom, you know, are frontline workers when they did not anticipate being frontline workers, Um, people who are um, figuring out new platforms um, to teach on, people who are simultaneously teaching remotely and in person, right? Like, there's going to be there's not going to be a lot of energy right now to do problems, right. Like to that kind of creative problem solving. And so, you know, I think, and um, this is something that often goes beyond the individual. Um, And it's like, whatever we can do as policymakers, as school leaders to lighten that load. So the interesting creative work can take place. Like that's our job, you know, that's our job.
1: I also like to think that in addition to problem solving, um, one of the inclusions I've come come to over the past few years is if there were a non-education class that I would want teacher educators to take, it's improvisation.
0: Mm -hmm. It's
1: a class on improvisation. Because you mentioned like perfectionism and I think that teachers have this idea that they're going to go in and they have a plan in their head and that's how it's going to go. And teaching is much more of an interaction than that. And it's an interaction that, you can plan for, you know, it's not like you don't want to come in with lesson plans. Um, but you also have to learn how to really think on the fly and be okay with the idea that it's not going to go the way you want. And you should expect that it's not going to go the way you want.
0: I agree. I'm, I um, am I, so for the improv. I'm also, I'm, I'm actually, the wheels are turning right now going, how could we do that? How could we include an improv class? <laughs> and, and, you know, one of I, the things I often do, even just to think about voice and modulation is I often, um, send students to get help from our, our theater folks, um, mm-hmm. because that sense of presence is so important as a teacher.
1: Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, this is a little off script, but I guess it's appropriate because we're talking about improvisation, but, um, I guess it would be like, I would imagine that you would have a theater professor or, and, and maybe a, an education professor team up, and teach a class that looks like how an improv class would be taught in a the theater department, but have the education professor be the one to bring it back to. And this is how this can look in the classroom yes, uh, or something like that.
0: Yeah. I love, I love it. I love that yeah. idea.
1: We talked a little bit about what teachers can do if they feel like they're demoralized. Uh, well, actually, before we move on, uh, you had mentioned connecting with other teachers, the importance of connecting with other teachers that way. And that's, that's a really interesting point because teaching can really almost inadvertently be a very solitary feeling profession. But I imagine it's got to be tough to connect with other teachers who are feeling demoralized because I feel like there would be in some ways a stigma on admitting to other people that you're demoralized. And I think about um you know the 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 problem that's often faced by by uh, stay-at-home parents. Mm. um where there's a stigma on you know like some days it's like being a stay-at-home parent's a real chore and you just oh i gotta do this again and but there's a stigma on admitting to anybody that it's anything but a wonderful lovely (laughs) experience all the time and i have to imagine that for teaching it would be a similar way to go uh do you know of any places where that are set up maybe to, for teachers to go to, are there any like online spaces or. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, you know, I think that there are, um, a number of, um, teacher activist online networks that are Mm. addressing a lot of these, um, a lot of these issues, um, such as like the Badass Teachers Association, which is both national and, um, and also usually has a, like, there might be a, like, we have a main BATS, right? And so um, that's one place to find people. There's also, like, the Network for Public Education, um, all kinds, uh, United Opt Out, you know, people who are concerned about over-testing, United Opt Out. Um, so there are a number of online places, both, um, I'm not on Instagram, but I'm on uh, Twitter, and I I know that these exist on Facebook. Um, right. but, I, but I was going to say, as you were talking, Kevin, and saying, um, you know, I imagine it would be difficult to uh, raise these concerns. Oh, also another important um, place is EduColor. Um, the EduColor um, group online is, is a huge uh, source. And a lot of these uh, groups have um, monthly Twitter chat, I guess. It's a Twitter, live chat, live Twitter chat. Um, you know, like, so I know EduColor, you know, uh, definitely has one for, and you don't have to be a person of color. You can be a person who is interested in racial justice in schools. I know there's like the, um, Black Lives Matter at school, um, group, but then as you were talking, Kevin, I was thinking when you were saying, oh, is it, is it like there's some stigma, to admitting these feelings and you know i um follow mostly teachers on twitter and there mm. are so many teachers sharing these um concerns mm. online yeah. i i find and and not just in a um you know, sense of um commiseration, but really doing some great problem solving. And a lot of people talk about Twitter as the most amazing um professional development that you could possibly get.
1: Wow. I have never um, thought that I'd hear the word Twitter and amazing professional yeah. development in the same sentence. Yeah. But yeah, that it sounds like that would work. Yeah.
0: And and so, and you know, I really like it as a white woman, I get to follow a lot of educators of color and hear their um, experience about their experiences and concerns, you know, in, in a way where it's totally public, but I get to have an education and it's a way I can educate myself uh, better as a white person. Um, yeah. But so, um, you know, one thing anyone who's listening can do is you can go onto Twitter and find me and then look at who I'm following um, oh, well, and, yeah. and you can follow my who I follow. And so there's like a whole host of teachers there and you can... You know, zoom in just on like people who are urban, who are rural, who are suburban. You can zoom in on level. You can zoom in on great on uh, content area. There are all kinds of ways to do it, but um, there are people sharing their feelings on Twitter wow. in teaching. That's great. Yes, That's great. I think I, I actually think it's a, a really wonderful resource.
1: Yeah. Well, let's move then to um, administrators and maybe even people at the policy level, because you mentioned a lot of folks are online and uh, contra what my expectations were sharing these thoughts very publicly. Um, So I'm sure that, you know, uh, administrators and people in the policy world can, you know, can easily see what the what teachers are talking about in terms of burnout. But what can an administrator or even at the public policy level, what can those folks do Mm to ward against um, or help teachers through being demoralized and working through that because I'm sure administrators don't want teachers to leave at any fast clip.
0: No. And, uh, but I do think, and I think this is a really important piece that you you helped me make sure I say by what you were just talking about before which is one of the most important things that I think um, school leaders administrators policymakers can do and and researchers as well is to really get curious about teachers either expressions of resistance or expressions of dissatisfaction um, I think when, you know, when I have been doing, I, I did a literature uh, review on um, teacher resistance because I, I edited a book on on teacher resistance. And one of the things that really struck me was all of the resistance uh, that's discussed is about almost all of it. There's a couple of exceptions, a few exceptions. All of the resistance is discussed as being sort of um, obstructionist or recalcitrant, you know, so not wanting to change or um, just being grumpy about being asked to do something. And so I think one of the things, you know, if I could imagine, and it could be reasonable, you know, to, and, and there are examples of this, of, of a school leader seeing someone complaining online about something and just saying, God, this person is just a complainer. Like, can you, you know, do say something positive? But, and, and again, I want to acknowledge there are just people who are going to complain no matter what that that happens. But if we start to see patterns of that in your school. Um, and I'm actually working with um, Virginia Commonwealth University's um, Metropolitan Educational Consortium, uh, Research Consortium. And, and, you know, we've been doing um, studies of uh, climate studies of schools so we can home in on schools and, like, how, what are the sources of teacher dissatisfaction in these schools and in these districts? And so, you know, yes, if it's one person, okay, like, let's, it's still worth investigating. Um, but if there are patterns, like, let's really get curious about that and think about what's going on. Um, and not just dismiss it as um mere not wanting to engage in change, or someone just has a negative attitude.
1: Um, well, especially if, especially if those teachers end up leaving, right? It's one, exactly. thing to say, it's one thing to say, oh, they're just complaining. It's just, you know, they're just obstructionist. Uh, but it's another thing if they're actually going to leave the field, even if you think they're wrong, it's probably in your interest as an administrator to, to hear them out if there's something you can do to keep them.
0: Exactly, it's an, it's it's extraordinarily costly um, to replace a teacher, you know, and um, both um, for the culture of the school and the um, a, and for all of the recruitment and all of that goes into it. Um, so keeping teachers is the is the right thing both uh, financially and uh, morally if they're if if they're doing a good job. Um, but the other piece of this is that. Um, I think the most amazing question any um, administrator could ask a teacher is what do you need to do good work and what's getting in the way of your being able to do good work or your best work? Um, And administrators might find that there's something so inconsequential really getting in the way of teachers doing their best work, that they can remove that for them. They can remove that barrier and both increase teacher satisfaction and the quality of work that they're doing. I don't think we ask that question. We just do not ask that question. I'd love to sell you a very expensive, I mean, I really wouldn't, but like I could, you know, there's all kinds of programs that are being sold to do all kinds of culture change in school, right? We could make this a very complicated and very expensive process. But instead, how about you just in a wholehearted and open-minded way ask teachers what is getting in the way of you doing your best work and then engage in some creative problem solving
1: yeah yeah and i guess it's probably um i'm sure it's it's true in a lot of professions where there's like management and then there's the people under management doing a very different kind of work and Seems pretty common for both sides to assume that they kind of know what the other side's job is. And like, you know, I, yeah, I know what your job is. And maybe we don't ask that question because administration kind of assumes that they kind of know what teaching is and they know what it is to do teaching. So I don't really have to ask. I can just design what I think works. Whereas teachers are kind of like, no, you really should ask me because Mm -hmm. I'm the one who's doing it every day.
0: Exactly. 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 Um, one of the things I'm just about to do, I told you I was just visiting um, my daughter's school and, you know, I can imagine there are ways to do this. Like so right now, elementary teachers are just so overwhelmed um, in, in dealing with like all the ways they need to teach, uh, you know, both online and in person and deal with new platforms. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to go in and relieve teachers for a couple of hours each week so they can go do some, you know, like catch up on work or do whatever. Like we could do this. Like people could do, this could happen in schools um, in terms of, yes, have the people go through background checks and then give teachers a little bit more release time. Um, Would that involve trusting teachers Uh, you know, and, and believing that, um, they both, um, deserve that time and, um, and we'll use it well and we don't need to micromanage it. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, what a way to, like, I'm just so excited that the school was willing to consider that. And, and, you know, I bounced a few ideas around of like, Oh, how can I help? And, and it was like being ready to listen and for me to just offer a few ideas and to listen to what was really needed. You know, that's, that's what we need to do, not come in with ideas of how, how are we gonna fix this.